The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. We're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. And as we do, I want to begin making you think a little bit. How do you define success? Uh, it's kind of a hard thing to answer on, uh, on short notice, but think about it for just a minute. How do you define success? Uh, when you put your head on the pillow at the end of the day, what, what are you thinking about how this was a good day or a bad day? How are you defining success? And that's a little bit what we're going to look at today, but more particular to the, to the context, which is Noah's children. What we're going to do is look at Noah's children and how they did. We're going to evaluate how successful they were. And so let me ask you that same question with a little different angle. How did you teach your children, or how are you teaching your children, if you've got children? How are you teaching them what success looks like? Like, what are you praising them for? This is success. What are you training them for? What are you equipping, equipping them for? What, what are you telling your kids? This is the successful life that I want for you. And, and as we know, what we do is always more powerful than what we say to our children. So whether you have children or not, this is a great uh, text for us to evaluate our own lives, whether how we live and model for our kids. And if we have kids, if we don't, then how we live. How are we defining success and how are we measuring up to that that rubric that we're going to put together on how to define success. So my prayer is that as we look at Noah's children, that we evaluate how we define success for ourselves and for the children that God has given us. Lord, would you teach us this morning a new paradigm, a new rubric, a challenge, challenge us to look at how we are teaching our kids what we think success in life is so that we are conformed to what you say in your word. I pray, Lord, that you'll do this by the work of your spirit through the teaching of your word for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so where are we in the Bible? We're working through Genesis, which is the beginning of your Bible, and we are to the end of the introduction. The the Bible is written as a book, and so it has an intro, and that intro spans from chapter 1 to chapter 11. And so there are very uh, foundational themes that we've been seeing in these chapters 1 through 11, themes that are just profound. They, They affect all of humanity. They help us understand what we need to know about who God is and who we are and our nature and our character and what God's plan is in creating and why did he create this world in the first place. I mean, these are profoundly important themes that God has been providing us in this introduction to his Bible. And these themes are to be carried out in throughout the rest of the Bible as we read the text. And so what we have seen thus far is God is incredibly good and gracious That he is this all-powerful, sovereign one who spoke creation into existence and he has a mission for it. He has a purpose in doing this. And what we're going to see is that that purpose was to glorify himself, to make his, his name famous, to make his glory known over all the face of the earth. He created Adam and Eve. He said, trust me, obey me. They failed. Instead of filling the earth with his glory, they filled the earth with evil. 
such that all the thoughts of man was continually wicked and evil all the time is what we saw in, verse, in chapter 7 and 8. And so God cleansed the earth of evil and he started over. He graciously saved Noah and his family from the punishment of sin. How and why? Because they trusted in God. They walked with God. They trusted in the promised redemption that God said would come through the seed of the woman. And as a result, they were declared holy. They were declared righteous. They were spared the judgment flood that came and they were given hope, a future and a life. And then that's where we pick off. Last week we ended with Noah had three sons. And we see that God told him in chapter 9 verse 1, be fruitful, fill the earth, all the earth with your descendants. And that's exactly the phrase we see repeated throughout these introductory passages. And so we come today and we're going to see how did the children of Noah do? Did they do well? When they call home and they report how things are going, did the kids fail to launch or did they launch well? And that's what we're going to evaluate, and it has implications on Noah. How well did Noah train his kids? And so what we see in chapter 10, I'm just going to tell you what happens in chapter 10. I know you're disappointed. You wanted to read the genealogy of chapter 10, but I'm not going to. But what remember, we saw genealogy, stop, interrupt it with the flood narrative, and now we pick up with genealogy, going from Adam all the way to Noah and his sons. And so what does chapter 10 do? Chapter 10 traces the spread of this new humanity, this second humanity after the flood. It shows them spreading across all of the earth. There's that phrase again. It shows them spreading across all of the earth. And so we see in order, he, he mentions first Japheth, Japheth's son, spread throughout the distant coastal lands, which would be considered the ends of the earth from the author's perspective. So the first little tracing of the son of Noah is they go to the end, the uttermost ends of the earth. And then we see Ham. Ham's sons become known as the Canaanites. And in the genealogy, it, it gets very specific and very detailed about where they were located. And it, if you chart it out on a map, like a good Bible study Bible will often do, you'll see it's the land of the promised land that becomes a major emphasis in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. It's the whole Bible is about this specific land. And so Ham or the Canaanites fill the land of promise or the, Canaan, the land of Canaan. And so we see, okay, that's what the author was doing with that descendant, what he was wanting to draw attention to. And so all we have left is the line of Shem. The name Shem literally means name. And all throughout this text, we see it is dripping with irony. Hebrew scholars, I don't understand it, how they do it because they're just brilliant Hebrew scholars and they know the language, but they say that it's just Wordplay after wordplay. The way Hebrew language works is, is the way a word sounds. They will use that to, to make a wordplay. And we're going to see that that's what is going on here. What, is, what we see appears one way is not at all as it appears in this text. And so when we trace the family line of Shem, whose name means name, we see the line goes to two places. First, we see where we're going to look today is the descendants end up in chapter 11 in the city of Babylon. 
And then we'll look at that today, but then we'll pick up next week, the very next verse, after this story of Babylon, it goes back to Shem, whose name means name, and it ends up tracing to who? What's in chapter 12? Abraham. And what does God say in the calling of Abraham? God, we will see next week, says, and I will make your name great. In the city of Babylon, what we see them saying is, let us make a tower to our own name. And so what you have being done in the genealogy is a picture of all the nations have been filled with people. The three sons of Noah have filled the nations. And against that backdrop today, we're going to zero in on what they look like, what is characteristic of human nature. Babylon is symbolic of all of human nature. It actually takes on this idea in the scriptures of Babylon is symbolic of all the godless pagan nations of sinful human nature. In Revelation, we see Babylon is destroyed as the final victory. And so Babylon is a picture of all the nations and then Abram becomes Abraham who is God's way of doing things over and against the nations. God calls one from the nations to build for himself a nation of people who trust him and bring him glory. And so these are massive important themes in chapters 1 through 11 which we settle and then we read the Bible looking for these themes and how they play out. And one major important theme that's been established in Genesis 3, verse 15, is the seed of a woman that God promised after sin, after fall. He said, there will be the seed of a woman who will destroy the enemy, destroy Satan, and redeem and restore God's people and God's planet. And we've been watching that, that theme, and that should be something you do as a good reader of the Bible, is where's the seed? Who's that promised seed? Is it Cain? No. Is it Abel? No. Abel's dead. Cain killed Abel. Who is it? Well, God appointed another son, Seth. And then we trace Seth's kids, and then we get to Noah. Is it Noah? No, he got drunk and sinned and brought shame. And then we see his three sons. And so we're saying, is it Japheth? Is it Canaan or Ham? Is it Shem? Who is this, the promised line? Where will the Messiah come from? And then we see, we see we get to Shem, and there's two lines. One leads to Babylon, one leads to Abraham. And so the kids of Noah have, have launched They've been sent out to the ends of the earth, and we want to see how they're doing. They pick up the phone, they call home, and the parents are excited. Noah's like, kids, finally calling home, honey, come here, let's listen. How's it going? Tell us all about it. And it says, now the whole earth had one language. This is 11.1. And the same words, one language, same words, one language, same dialect even. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's stop there. How's how's it going? The kid calls home and reports, 
here's what's going on. We've invented a completely new technology. Mesopotamia invented the baked brick, a brick that could, could sustain a structure. So they've invented the brick where you bake the clay, and they've invented mortar where you could join these solid bricks together and create incredible edifices. And They had engineering brilliance. They had vision. They had architectural design. They had a plan to to work together. They were committed. They were working hard. They were were establishing their life. They were protecting themselves from danger, building a walled city. And they were building a tower so that they could all live and have an economy. And so they call home and they report these things. And with what you've taught them, what do you say? You say, you're killing it. You are killing it. This is exactly why I paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for you to go to college. This is exactly why I paid for those tutors and I put you through all that schooling. This is what I told you. If you work hard, you can live the dream. This is what we're telling them. You have work ethic. You have vision. You're cooperating well with a team. And you have a great plan. And you have built a name for yourself. You've made the family name proud. Good job. That is success. All of you are not nodding because you're in church and you're going, I wouldn't say that. Because I know Babylon represents evil. That is exactly what we would say. That is exactly what we would tell them. Good job. That's exactly what I've been raising you to do. I mean, it is impressive. They have vision. I I am very easily impressed. I mean, anything with vision, just I love it. I gravitate toward it. I I drive down interstates, and, and everyone else is probably thinking about something very helpful. And I'm sitting there thinking, who had the idea to build this interstate? Who put in the work? I mean, my gosh, who could sit there and really think that you could plow through mountains and tunnel under oceans and build bridges? Man, I want to know these type of people. They have vision and do great things. And, and you drive by and you look at tall mountain, tall, tall buildings that reach to the skies. And you go to New York City and it's just incredible to appreciate the vision that people had. And, and you think that some guy way back in the day, floated up the river and came to the Shreveport and there was this big log jam and he decides, Henry Miller Shreve, I'm going to clear this log jam. And I just think, okay, so then people started getting off the boat here and they started building little roads and a little post office and little town square and little buildings. And at the head of downtown, they ultimately ended up building a church. And, and then it just grew and grew and an economy grew and the towers grew. And, and it's just impressive to me. And to think my kid could do that, I would say, you're my little visionary. Way to go. Good job. You're killing it. That's exactly what I wanted you to do with your life. Archaeologists have found Mesopotamian structures that that were like this tower that were built. They are impressive feats. 
They don't sound impressive in modern day language with, with technology and, and mechanical uh, machines that we have. But think about it. They invented the brick. They invented mortar. And they had vision. That, the typical structure was 150 to 200 feet wide. That's about how wide our property is here. So they, they, their buildings were that wide. They looked kind of like Egyptian pyramids. They went up like pyramid structures. And there'd be levels. And each level they had these huge massive staircases up there. And they very precise and beautiful artwork and craftsmanship and engineering feats and architectural design. It's impressive. And each layer would have another layer. And at the very top in the ones they find, there were these temples or shrines. And so they were called temple towers of worship. And so these people were very creative. They used the resources that were available to them and came up with incredible ways of doing things. This is actually very impressive. Any one of us would be proud of our kids when they called and described what they're a part of. Even God seems to be impressed. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, look at that. They are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. That's what I want God to say about my kid. This is just the beginning of what they're going to do. They have such potential. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. They have the whole world as their oyster. They have everything. Man, they've got all the potential in the world. They didn't just talk about building this tower. It says they built the tower. It's the children of man built this tower. And what does he say? This is only the beginning of what they can do. So they've called home. They've reported this to you. What do you say? You say, good job. Your whole life has been me preparing you for this moment. Now get off the payroll. Right? Now go make a check. Get off the payroll. You've done good, son. You've done good, daughter. This is what I wanted for your life. This is success. But then, as this text is written, it's dripping with irony, with wordplay. Everything starts to switch in verse 7. The Lord says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. There's a play on words. They say, let us make brick. Let us build a tower. Let us make a name. And God says, let us go down to their tower that supposedly is going to reach the heavens. Let us go way down there to their puny little tower and let me just confuse their language and watch what happens to them. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Imagine how frustrating that is. Hey, hand me a brick. All right. Hey, hand me a brick. Uh, excuse me, what? Like, what? All of a sudden, they can't communicate. And just with a little flick of a switch, with a little word struggle, everything comes to a screeching halt. Everything is comes to an end. It says that the Lord dispersed them from the, from, 
dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Babylon in Mesopotamia means the city gate of the gods. And so here the Lord takes their name, the gate of the gods, and playing on words calls it the gate or the tower, uh, the city of Babel, which means confusion. What you thought was a picture of your godlike success will now be a crumbled ruins, a picture of your confusion and how you are not a god at all. And he disperses them over the face of the earth, What in the world is God doing? Is God against buildings? Is God against vision? Is God against success? Why is God coming down and frustrating their success? We see a very important phrase in verse 9, that is repeated. And as good readers, as we have been reading through the Bible, the alarm bell should go off. Verse 9, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Why is the Lord not pleased with all the good things they're doing? What phrase jumps, at the page, jumps off the page at you because you've been reading and you've been seeing these introductory themes, these foundational themes, what phrase jumps off the page at you? It's repeated twice. All the earth. God told them, let me tell you what I'm doing. I am making my name great over all the earth. Let me tell you why I have created you. I've blessed you with all this blessing. Why? Because I want you to take my blessings, my fame, my glory to the ends of the earth. Over and over, Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, he, said, he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply over all the earth. In 1, God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. After the flood, God starts over. In 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his son saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what do they do? They get to the first place, the plains of Shinar, and they say, nope, we're not going to the ends of the earth. We're going to stop right here and we're going to build our city and we're going to build our tower. We're going to decide for ourselves what we do with our life. So let's work through those texts again. Now that we see this in a little different light, three attributes of our sinful human nature. First of all, we see self-determination. We want to decide for ourselves what we do with our lives. We want to be God. We don't want God telling us what to do. I don't care how pretty you make it sound, we resist it. We see self-determination in their life in this text. Where do you see that? Well, we see a hint of it, and it's worded in such a way that in verse 2 we are told they settled there. Right after we're told that Noah's, Noah's children were said, fill the earth It says they go to the plains of Shinar and they settle there. 
they settle in. They get comfortable. They get safe and they get secure. And they say, this feels right. They determine for themselves what is the good, blessed life. They determine for themselves what is good and evil. They partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil rather than trust that God is already doing what is good for them. That's what he's been showing them. The sin of Adam and Eve is not like this mean-spirited rebellion. It's pictured in the scriptures as silly foolishness. You really think that you know better for your life than what God knows for you? The creator, the sovereign one who is working everything for your good. And you think you know better when he says, take my glory to the ends of the earth. That is your best path in life. He's not out for your harm. He's out for your good. What's at the root of this problem? What's the root problem here? It's safety. It's security. We have this false illusion that we are safe and we are secure as long as we're doing what we determine we should do. And the Tower of Babel flips it on its head and says it's foolishness. This is what we teach our kids. What are we teaching our children? Success looks like. We raise them to say, listen, you can do whatever you put your mind to do. If you just work hard and you get an education, the world is your oyster. And then you want to know how to be happy in life? Just do what you do. Chase your dreams. If you just dream it, you can do it. And that's how you're happy in life. Build that tower to your own glory. We have to stop teaching our kids that the most important thing in life is getting a good job so they can make a bunch of money, so they can do whatever they want to do. We have to teach our kids, and that starts with the way we live. We have to teach our kids the most important thing in life, the way to be happy and blessed in God is to let Him order your steps. And if you are walking with God, you can't lose. God determination not self-determination. God truly is the only one who can keep you secure. We live with this false illusion of security when we are doing what we think we are in control of. And what does that lead to? All it leads to is anxiety because if we're in control, then we have got to keep everyone safe. Trust the Lord to keep us safe. Self-determination. Next, we see self-reliance. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Look at the pronouns. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And then in verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us, let us, let us. And in this text, they're called the children of man instead of the children of God. This is clearly a man-centered self-reliance. This too is something that we praise our kids for. This too is something we want to model for our kids. This is what we tell our kids. The successful life is that you don't ever need anybody else. Just get the education, get a skill, and you will never need anyone or anything. You've got to take care of yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with a good work ethic, but we're not teaching self-reliance against God-reliance. God's design is that we depend on Him. When we build our careers, it needs to be with that invisible attitude of I am depending on God's grace, God's strength, God's enablement. If He didn't want this, He would snuff it out in a second. That's what the Tower of Babel reminds us is there's nothing wrong with building great towers, great cities, and being that incredibly impressive visionary and architect and engineer and craftsman with the stone. But don't you dare think that you are doing this independent of God's help, God's empowerment, God's grace. Every day we praise God. God, thank you for anything that you've enabled me to do. Self-determination, self-reliance. That's what we want our kids to have, isn't it? And we would never say this, but if we are teaching self-determination and we are teaching self-reliance, then whether we realize it or not, we are teaching self-exaltation. We are teaching our kids self-exaltation. In our counseling community, in our worldly counseling community, it is, it is worded as self-esteem. Verse 4, then they said, they just said it blatantly, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. I think one of the scariest thoughts our culture can imagine is to live a life anonymously. To not be discovered. To not have our five minutes of fame. You want to make a parent mad. Don't give their kid the glory they think they deserve. We, every kid's a superstar. Every kid's the next star athlete and we're going to pay Unbelievable amounts of money to make sure they get that extra training because they're going pro. Their names are going to be in the headlights. They are going to get their day in the headlights, in the the spotlight. They're going to get their five minutes of fame. They're going to have their names written across every social media page. When I see my kid do something that deserves to be praised, I'm going to send a note out to everyone on social media. Look at my kid. They deserve praise. And we teach our kids, 
To be happy and healthy, you need your praise. You need to work hard. You need to pin on yourself. You need to do everything you can to make sure that you have that day where you get what you deserve. Self-exaltation. Our whole culture is built on it. Who will be the next American idol? So what's the problem in this text? Let me be clear. The problem is not the tower, unless there was like some weird shrine on top of it. The problem is not an amazing architectural accomplishment. The problem is not cities. The problem is not economy. The problem is not their craftsmanship. God, in fact, says, subdue the earth and go and do all those things. But you do all those things according to God's leading, God's directing, God's will, God's determining, not self-determining. And you do them dependent upon God's empowerment, God's gracious enablement. You do it depending on His gifts and his abilities so that you then know that everything that you've done is to the glory of God. There is so much irony in this passage. God comes down from the heavens that was supposedly just have to look over and see the tower but it didn't quite reach that he descends all the way down to their puny little tower and he just flicks it and says, really? You think you're a God? You're no God. What was to be the gateway of the gods becomes a banner of their ignorance and ruin and confusion. The point is this. What you think is success is only an illusion. What we think in our human nature is that if we are just in control, then we're safe and secure and life is good and life will be all that I want it to be. And it's the same foolish mistake humanity has been making since the garden. We know better than you, God. And what God is saying is no. The best life, the best place to be is sold out to his glory. To say, I exist to take God's name, God's fame anywhere he tells me to go I mean anywhere, anytime, no matter what I thought my plans were. If God says go, it is better to go than to stay. It is foolish to stay and think that I'm going to be happier if I'm in control and I'm providing my safety and I'm building a name for myself. It is foolish. Instead, we should say, okay, God, I'm yours because I see you're God and I'm not. And you have a great plan for my life. And it is to be caught up in your mission of making your name known to the ends of the earth. Where do you want me to go? I'll do it. 
That is the happiest place to be on earth. And we don't believe it. So what's the point? Get over your desire for security, power, and praise. And sell out to let God provide your security. Let God be your strength and God to get all the praise. In other words, embrace your purpose in life. Quit resisting it. Quit being afraid of telling your kids, God might send you to Africa. God might call you to the great honor of dying for his name's sake. What can they do but take my life? To be absent from this body is to be present with God Almighty. Oh, how far away I am from this. How different would your life look if you quit living afraid? How different would your life be if you quit parenting your kids to be afraid of living sold out for his glory? What difference would we make in this community if we just let go of the fear and the control? What if every time a middle schooler finished elementary school and went into middle school, we said, all right, you get to go on a mission trip with your family. And we said, every time we have someone go into middle school, that family goes overseas and shows that young, young man or young woman what it's like to be on mission for God. And what if we said, every kid who graduates from high school, before you launch off into college or your career, Give God your summer with the Lewises in Nairobi. Get a perspective of the darkness and the lostness across the world. Not everybody else lives like you do, son, daughter. Go, I want you to see how God shows up when you go overseas to share the gospel. What if we taught our kids that? What if we challenged our businessmen and women? God has given you these incredible abilities to start taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. How much money are you giving to fund the gospel mission? What if you started your business overseas, which gave hundreds of people an avenue to get into dark countries where they won't let the gospel go, but they'll let you go bring their business. What if that's why God gave you that business acumen? What if God gave you the ability and the discipline to be a doctor and he says, I want you to do this because people overseas will let you in when they won't let a missionary in. What if we started thinking God has called us to do whatever he tells us to do to take his glory to the ends of the earth? What if we weren't afraid? What if we had faith? 
What if we just walked with God and went wherever he led us? Father God, please make this a new day in my life, in the lives of every person who hears this message. Unshackle us from our fears and our need to be in control. Convince us in our hearts. Give us faith to believe that you are trustworthy. That we simply just need to trust you and obey you. And you will do glorious works for your name as we follow. Lord, you've given us a vision as a church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and we are turning the corner of a new day where you are laying on, our, on the leaders of this church a clear vision that we need to prepare to aggressively multiply what you're doing here to take the people who are here and send out our brightest and our best to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning in Shreveport, New Orleans, overseas, Nairobi. Lord, we, we've got to recognize ourselves in the Babylonians. We crave to be in control. We crave the power and we crave the glory. So by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, would you set us free from those idols and those enslavements that we can enjoy the life that you've called us to. Thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us of those sinful idols. Free us of those. Rid us of those. Set us free. Launch us. Wherever you lead us. For your glory. It's in Christ's glorious, praiseworthy name that we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.